excuse me, Exodus chapter 4. But we'll get to Deuteronomy in a little bit. I take that back, sister. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. I got a lot of scriptures for you this morning. Glad to be back. Yes, Sunday school, kids ministry is dismissed. Youth class, you're dismissed also. Praise God. Let's give him a hand, shall we? Uh, just out of uh, all the lockstep here after two weeks of quarantine, amen, and came back and uh, everything is great. Tested negative for COVID. All's great. No symptoms, nothing, never. Here I am. I want to play safe. I want to keep you safe. I want to keep you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Amen. And uh, I'm so glad to be back this morning when I came out. felt like George on It's Wonderful Life. You know, the movie. Go, Hello, everybody. <laughs> you know, so glad to see you. And that's the way I am still. I'm so glad to see you guys. Amen. Nicholas, praise God. God bless you. Good to see you. Hallelujah. Nick Poole. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. God is an awesome God. Thank you for registering and coming online. Thank you for your patience with me. And, uh, and I've got a long message to preach in a little bit of time. Praise God. Amen. Oh, I know you'd be joyed. I know you'd be overjoyed with that. No, we'll, we'll keep you in good time. It's 1034. Hallelujah. I've got about 35, 40 minutes to, to get your attention and get this home. I do feel that I have something to say. And by the way, let me just say, uh, I, I'm so impressed by the message on Wednesday night. And I'm in that. In fact, God prompted me to piggyback on what he laid as a foundation on Wednesday night from the book of Exodus and a special covenant. I remember, if you haven't listened to that message, you need to listen to it. I watched online on the services while we were out. And I'm telling you, I was very, very impressed for everybody. But this Wednesday night message really ministered to me, and it helped me really to focus on today's message and what really needs to be said. So I will utilize that, that special covenant concept from Wednesday night. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to talk about that and expound upon that just a little bit more, but in a different way, in a different realm. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, this is a very powerful and important scripture. In fact, this one verse I'm going to read to you right now is the first word that the Jewish people, the religious Jewish people whisper to their children when they're born, and it's the last scripture they whisper to them when they die. It is a scripture that is uh, placed upon a mezuzah that is in on the side of the door when they enter in. And if you ever see any movies or any Jews, when you see them go into their house and they go and put their hand on it, it is this Deuteronomy 6.4 that is a little scripture that's posted in the side of a little container that's on the side of their door. And so when they go in and when they go out, they remind themselves of this scripture. And most of the prayers will, will, will include somehow this scripture that I'm about to read to you it's here. In Hebrew, it's Shema. They call this the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elinehu Adonai Ehad, which is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We all know there's only one God, one Lord, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Verse 5, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And that's Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Jesus coins this also, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, 37, and reminds his crowd when he said, Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Now let me just back up here and just say, he was just asked a question, Master, what is the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments that we had, besides the Ten Commandments and all the others that, that was piled up on us, which is the greatest? And he said this, this is the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And the last scripture I read to you this morning is one verse from 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, 
Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. All those things that we dream about or think about or what we think we know about heaven, it's a wonderful place, but it's prepared for those who love him. How can you love somebody you don't know? We're going to talk about that this morning. Because as far as God is concerned, both in the Old and New Testament, love is an important concept. It's not just that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not so much that God so loved the world, but he's waiting for a response from his creation. And heaven is a place prepared for those that respond in kind. How? By loving him. So the question I want to drive home tonight to the children of the special covenant. Do you love him? Do you love God? I'm not saying are you obeying him, but if you're obeying him even, are you doing it from your heart or just from your mind? And there's a difference between the two. Because love will bring forth obedience. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the greatest of these is loving God with everything you've got. Your body, mind, soul, and strength. And that's going to take intentionality and focus. Not compartmentalizing God to just one hour a week or one day. But it's a lifestyle of a relationship. God, I thank you for the people within the sound of my voice today. I thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word, oh Lord, that is supreme above all. I'm nothing but a mouthpiece. Lord, I'm a nothing and a nobody, but you're everything, oh Lord. And I pray that you would use this vessel of clay and use it for your glory. Lord, use it to edify your people, to strengthen, and indeed to be filled with love that they can respond in kind to your goodness and mercy to us. Bless your people today in Jesus' name I pray. And let the church say amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Our love for God is what validates our service for God. It's like doing something that you know you're supposed to do, but your heart is in it. And there's a difference between you doing something and your heart is not in it. I mean, I'm I'm sure that you face that in your own life and certain tasks and routines that we go through that some we enjoy and some we do not. And some we do simply because we have to. And we have an obligation. We have a responsibility. And let's face it, not all duties are very pleasant. But uh, we're consistent because we know that as adults, uh, it is incumbent upon us to do the right thing. But many times uh, in our employment, for example, we have, well, we've done jobs that, uh, that weren't very pleasant. And I can tell you right now that, that my heart wasn't in, in what I was doing. I remember working a year as a supervisor at uh, Midwest Rubber Reclaiming Company in Sauja, Illinois, and uh, was working a dirty, dusty, dingy factory that was built in the 1920s, taking rubber tires and, and shredding them and, and grinding them apart and, and putting them into, uh, I'm separating the rubber from the fire and the metal and everything else, and then grinding it down and putting it through mills and then putting into these Big devulcanizers, huge, empty, submarine-looking, rotating machines that, that are, are filled with this used ground-up rubber and mixed with chemicals that's cooked at 320 degrees of PSI, pounds per square inch, uh, uh, per square inch pr- steam pressure. And it was cooked, and after it was cooked with its chemicals, it's dumped, and, it, and it's processed through a, a fine grind system, and it it, 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 it comes out through mills that, that, uh, that puts them out into thin sheets of rubber that get piled up into big rubber slabs, which in turn are pa- placed on wooden pallets and then shipped to tire manufacturing companies to use that reclaimed rubber in new tires. 
And I can tell you, I was involved in the shipping of it. I was in the yard in what it involved overseeing people that, that fed the line, that, that put the used tires on this, this line, Brother Brian, and it went to the grind, amen, to the, the grinding mills and then up to the production line and down to the, to the fine grind mills uh, and then to shipping. Shipping is really where I started, learning how to load an 18-wheeler and how to arrange the weight. Amen. Depending on what size the load was and putting. But I'm telling you, I remember a lot about it, but I didn't really enjoy it. My degree was in secondary education, and here I am in a dirty, dusty, dingy rubber factory. And I came home every night with black stuff all over me, you know, this dust and, and, and grime and everything else. And I remember working in the graveyard, and I was praying back then. God, give me full-time ministry. I was already a licensed preacher. I had a local license, and I said, God, give me full-time ministry. I'll never complain. And God answered my prayer. Hallelujah. Two years later. And here I am, 37 years later. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, actually, it's 33 years. They were full-time. 33 years later, here I am. Full-time ministry, amen. Didn't have to do another secular job. I had my share. I'm telling you, I did all kinds of things. I was a janitor in a, in, in a nursery. Uh, I, was, uh, I pumped gas at a gas station. I worked in the Ralston Purina Redemption Coupon Company. And I worked for New Made Margarine in Cincinnati, Ohio, and St. Bernard, amen, producing margarine and rubber, both in shipping and in production. Amen, I did all kinds of things. Whatever I had to do, to make a buck to get to the next step, to get a little higher. Selling shoes and clothing and pants and, 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 and retail in downtown Cincinnati at, ben, at Ben's department store, earning a dollar and 60 cents an hour. Wow. Woo! <laughs> back then, you could go to McDonald's, get a sandwich for a dollar and a fry and drink and get changed back because it was 99 cents. Those were the days. But clearly on all of those things that I've done, there were jobs that I did not enjoy. I did not enjoy sales, door-to-door sales. I did not enjoy working for Fuller Brush, knocking on a door, going door-to-door and offering you know, a vegetable cleaner. Good afternoon, ma'am, Fuller Brush man. Still remember the line. You had your folder and you had to take your order. No Amazon. Uh-huh. Amazon, I'll tell you what, made it so much easier. I did not enjoy that. And you know, the bottom line is that there are things in our lives that, that we do because we have to and we've got to earn a buck and we've got to pay our bills and we've got to take care of families, but there's some things we don't enjoy and our heart is not in it. And you know, people notice when your heart is not in it. You could be in a marriage and go through the routine and not enjoying simply because your heart is not in it. You can come to church and do your duty because that's the right thing to do on a Sunday morning and your heart is not in it. And it's noticeable. And not just to each other, but more than that, it's noticeable to God. This is why I ask the question again, do you love God? Is your heart in what you're doing? Because it's misery if your heart is not in the right place. Church is a drudgery if you don't love what you're doing. If you don't know your Savior, you don't love your Savior, church is just a chore. It's just another job that you don't enjoy doing. That's why love's got to be a part of it. it that, that's why it's the greatest commandment. Love is at the center of it all. And that's why Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, you can do, want to do great things for God and understand mysteries and, and speak in tongues and perform miracles and all that. But after all that, the center of it has got to be love. Yeah, I can do all those things, speak in tongues of angels, and I can get my body to be burned. But if I have not charity, if I don't have love, I am nothing. We have a special covenant with God. Thank the Lord for that. But if we don't have love for the covenant maker, for the Savior who established it, 
contrary to our nature and contrary to the fact that we don't deserve it, that really it's a drudgery and it's a tragedy because God sees our heart. Because that's the way it is in our relationship with God. He brought us out of Egypt, you know, as you know, for those of you that may not be so versed in, in biblical language and, and typology, Egypt and, uh, is a type of sin. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Uh, the Red Sea is a type of water baptism in Jesus' name. The land of Canaan is a symbolic representation of the new birth and the Holy Ghost. And really in many ways it's a symbolic representation also of heaven, the promises of God yet to come. And so, so the children of Israel, uh, the people of God in the Old Testament, uh, by covenant, uh, God claimed them as, their first, as his firstborn. If, why? Because it was the only nation that God ever created for himself for a specific purpose. When God looked at an idolatrous world, he looked down and said, uh-uh, I'm not choosing any of them. I'm going to take one man, Abraham, and I'm going to create a, a nation out of them for me, for my namesake, for my truths, and the, that they were, through them I may show what the true God is, who the true God is, and what truth is all about, and what I require from man and how I deal with mankind. And so he established the nation of Israel. But in that process, from the time that God called Abraham, four generations or so later, they are in Egypt. And from 70 family members, Israel in Egypt grew to be a nation of one and a half to two and a half million people. But through that time, as they grew, the Egyptians enslaved them because they became fearful of them. They grew so rapidly and became so prosperous and so blessed that the Egyptians felt that if they don't somehow control and corral them, that if there's a war against an outside nation, then the Jewish people may rise up against the Egyptians from within, and therefore they did not want to take the chance. They were afraid of them, and so they enslaved them. They set taskmasters over them and slowly began to, uh, to enslave them, and, and, and their children and their future was all now in the hands of Pharaoh. And for 400 years, 400 years the Jewish people, the people of God, lived in, in Egypt until God sent Moses to deliver them with a mighty hand. And I'm not going to get into the story of Moses, but you, you should know the details. You could read about it in Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3, and 4. <coughs> Excuse me. And how God did all that and why God called Moses. What happened to him? But God clearly used Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. And when we look at the story of Israel, it is really also symbolically a, a representation of your story and mine because uh, it, it, it speaks of God's delivering you and I from the power of sin, from Egypt, from the power of Satan, from Pharaoh, and brings us out from under his power and from the future that he planned for, uh, for his slaves uh, and brought us to a, a promised land, uh, a covenant relationship, and a, and, and a life that is a whole lot better than what we have experienced in Egypt. And this is in a spiritual context. And, and so uh, as we come out of Egypt, as we have in our own lives, have come out from our past lifestyles uh, of sin, we have every kind of sin represented in this congregation. Amen. And Paul said, such were some of you were, past tense. Uh, we were all of those things, drunkards and liars and thieves and immoral people, all of us, hallelujah. But we have been repented, uh, amen. We have been baptized. Uh, we have been justified. We have been sanctified. Uh, even the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God, Paul says, uh, we are changed. We're no longer what we were. We came out from under the power of sin and the power of ungodliness and came under the power of goodness, under the power of God. And I we're no longer living to the sinful desires of our flesh, but to the desires and dictates of God. We're trying. That's why God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, so we can help, to, so we can help, give us the strength to overcome those, those impulses, those fleshly, carnal things that we're still struggling with each and every day. So we have to overcome those things uh, and our weaknesses uh, but, but many times, you know, when, when Israel came out of uh, Egypt, they had to, God separated them from Egypt for, for a purpose. And that was so that they can connect to God. Out from Egypt to God is a two-part step in this relationship, in this covenant. 
Amen. It is coming out of Egypt, leaving where you were, but coming to God and latching on to him. It's like letting go of one thing and then grabbing something else. And there's no life in between. You're either in one or the other. You're either holding on to one or you've got to hold on to the other. There is no in between. And many times as we come out of our spiritual Egypt as Christians, we have problems sometimes leaving behind Egypt, letting go of the things of Egypt, and latching on full force with our hands, amen, because the heart is not fully in it. And that was the problem with Israel. Too often, we just want a, a, a remedy to our, our present situation. We are in a crisis. We have a problem. We're facing something uh, terrible in, in our lives, and, and God intervenes, and he helps, uh, and he brings us out of it, and then we think, great, everything is well. I'm going to keep on living my life the way I want to live it, not realizing that all the time that God has a plan and a purpose for my life, and I've got to do more than just quit doing what I'm doing and not just rejoice in what God has done for me. I've got to latch on to him and follow after him. I've got to do his dictates. Because you see, as the old song says, you got to serve somebody. And there's only two powers that you can serve. It's either the power of the world, the power of the devil, or the power of God. There's no, no in between. It's one or the other. Jesus said as much. Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon at the same time. You will either love one and hate or hate the other. We've got to make a choice. And if a heart is not in serving God and not loving him, then we've got to have a hard time living for God. And so this is what I want to address today because it has everything to do with our heart. See, God had this same problem with Israel before he delivered them. They were slaves for 400 years, and they haven't heard of God. They haven't seen God. They heard the promises to uh, the family. Teach, uh, every, every, uh, every now and then, they, when they came together as a family eight, and, oh, where is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We heard the promise that we are his people. We are the chosen people. Great. What a chosen life this is. Amen. Slaves in Egypt. But we're still looking for the deliverer. We're looking to get out of here. Well, one day it came. God called Moses. And in chapter 4, after 400 years, the Bible says, as God sent Moses down to Israel, the first thing God did was to tell Moses to call the elders of Israel together. So elders of Israel were called together in uh, verse 29 of chapter 4. And Moses and Aaron and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Now, the elders is talking about the tribal leaders, the patriarchs. And Aaron spake all the words of the Lord, had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. They were miraculous signs that, 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 that they did and performed to get the attention. Why? Because God confirms his word with signs, wonders, and miracles. That's one of the reasons why he fills people with the Holy Ghost with the sign of speaking in tongues. It's a confirmation. It's a seal. It's an outward manifestation of an inward work that God is doing in life. And he's sealing you. And it's an outward uh, signal that he has sanctified you, that he has accepted your faith. Amen. In the work of Calvary. And so signs were done by Moses too and with Aaron. And the Bible says, and the people believed, meaning the elders. And when they heard that the Lord visited the children of Israel and they looked upon their affliction that there, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. They heard Moses' word, saw the miracles, put their head down, and they worshipped. They were yielding right away. I'm ready to go. Well, then the next thing in chapter 6, Moses calls the people together. And watch the progression. This is very important for leadership as well. When you're dealing with a great crowd and, and uh, you want to change things, you want to go in a different direction, whatever you want to do, you better go through the leadership of the people. You better have your leaders on board. And that's what Moses did. And after the leaders were on board, the leaders of the tribes, then he goes to the people. And then Moses, in eight verses, gives them a great message of the gospel 
the words of God himself, that I'm God, Jehovah, I'm the only one. I know I'm the one that made the covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm here to visit you. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. You are going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to give you new holidays, uh, uh, new everything. You're not going to be slaves in Egypt anymore. Just believe in me, trust in me, and I will lead you to the promised land. And the people said, yeah, right. They had a harder time. In fact, uh, the Bible tells us in verse 9, And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses, watch this, for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. Moses spoke the gospel to them. As we speak and preach the gospel today, the only thing is that too many times people in bondage, people who are in bondage to their sins and their lifestyle, they are in bondage to their habits and their carnality and their fleshly desires, uh, they can't break loose. And they're hurting. Many of them are full of anguish. Many are full of fear. Many of, 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 many of them are filled with all kinds of negative thoughts about themselves. And they can't comprehend the gospel. It just goes right over the heads. And, and same thing with Israel. That's exactly what it was. They heard nothing but great words that penetrated their mind but not their heart. And this message just flew over their heads. They heard Moses, but they didn't hear him. They heard him, but they didn't hear him. God sent me. Listen to all these great words. And, he, and mentally, they ascended to it. They understood, but they've been listening to that for a thousand, well, 400 years from their family. We're chosen. We're going out of here. But they had to wait. And 400 years later, they're still slaves. So they said, I don't know if this is real. So for the next 10 miracles, God proceeds to, to intervene in the situation by passing judgment upon Egypt. Ten judgments. Ten. Now, ten is the sign for judgment. Ten plagues upon Egypt to judge Egypt. There's ten commandments to judge sin. There are ten fingers, ten fingers and digits on our hands, which will, which, which designed by God, shows us that all the works of our hands will come into judgment. There are ten toes on our feet, totally, totally. To, to remind us that we're going to stand before God to give an answer in judgment for the ways that we have walked, for the places we have gone, the things that we have done. There are ten virgins, five foolish, five wise, Jesus talked about. And the church is a symbol of the fact representing the entire church, that the church will be judged. In fact, when the rapture comes, the Bible tells us, you know, half will be taken, one taken, the other, other left. There's judgment coming. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. And if not in the judgment seat of Christ, you'll stand before him in a white throne judgment. But the point is, is that when we hear these messages of goodness from God and appeal, it goes to our minds, but our heart is unfazed. And so what God does, and this is so marvelous, that it just so opened my understanding because one day I was right here praying, and I asked God, I said, God, why did it take you 10 miracles to bring Israel out of Egypt, not just one? And instantly he answered, and that's what I'm preaching to you today. He said, because the heart wasn't fully turned to me. And every miracle was a special sign to my people that I care about them. I love them. And every turn and every miracle, their heart turned one more notch closer towards me. And when the heart was fully focused on God and in alignment with your mind, when your heart and mind is in agreement, then the body and soul is delivered. And so God did 10 great miracles on Egypt as not only a sign to, eat, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians that there's a difference between God's people of special covenant and the Egyptians, but also that he is God and that he's going to take his people out. And it was also a sign to his own people how much he cares for them, how much he loves them, that he will fight for them, he will provide for them. And at every turn, 
The purpose of all that was so that his people could fall in love with him. Because they would say, God, we don't deserve this. We couldn't have fought against Egyptians like this. We couldn't have done it this way. We couldn't have produced blood in the waters out of all of Egypt. We couldn't have produced all the frogs, all the flies. We could not produce darkness upon the land like you did. In fact, the Bible said three days darkness was on the land of Egypt. So thick that you could feel it. God did that for his people. Why? So that their heart would turn to him. Hallelujah. And God's doing the same thing for you and I. God did it in, 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 in Exodus for the Israelites. But I see this happening time and again for you and me. God fights for you and I. Why? Because he loves us. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Calvary is one of the greatest manifestations, examples of his love. One of the greatest interventions of God in the life of mankind is to show how much he cares for them, that he would die for them. Why? Because sin required a blood sacrifice. This was in the, back in the Garden of Eden. You know the story when Adam and Eve sinned. Amen. Then God had to kill animals to shed their blood and create coats of skins for mankind to cover their nakedness because the glory of God lifted. And there they were standing stark naked, uncovered. They made fig leaves there. God said, that's not good enough. Hello? A bikini's not going to do it. A little thong's not going to do it. Sorry. I'm going to make you coats of skins. And he did. He clothed them. He clothed them. Listen, Jesus didn't wear no shorts either. I'm telling you. The Bible tells us in Revelation, in his glorified state, he's walking among the candlesticks. And the Bible said, John said, on, he was on the, Lord's, on the Lord's day in the spirit, and the Bible said that Jesus had a robe on from here down to his ankles. New Testament. I'm just throwing that in for good measure, okay? I'll deal with some of this later. But see... God is working in the lives of people. Just as he sent Moses, his minister, to his people to preach them the good things of the, of the kingdom and, 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 and the kingdom of God, he sends ministers to you and I today. He sends preachers. He sends us sermons. He sends signs, wonders, miracles. He does good things for us. Why? Because it's the revelation of his glory. I preached that to you once before. Amen. The four dimensions of the glory of God. Now Moses asked God to, to show him his glory. He said, all right, Exodus 33, come up to the mountaintop and I'll make my goodness to pass before you. My, I will proclaim my name and my graciousness and my mercy. The four dimensions of God. The first one is the goodness of God. The glory of God revealed. You want to see God? You'll see him in the goodness. All the good things he has done for you, even when you don't deserve it. He does good things. Amen. Not because we deserve it, but because that's his nature. Because he wants to help you turn your heart towards him so you can fulfill the greatest commandment in the Bible, to love God. Oh, hallelujah. You understand that when God does great things for us, uh, things happen, our heart turns to him. That's the greatest propensity, the greatest opportunity to turn your heart towards him and fully embrace him and yield to him and follow his ways and not the ways of your own heart. See, it's not that we deserve anything. God does things to, to all of us in a way that, that it blesses us, but we don't deserve it. In fact, I thought about King Ahab. You know the story with Elijah? And uh, Ahab was the most wicked king Israel ever had. Uh, the idolatry he introduced, his, he married a woman, Jezebel, who's not an Israelite, that was totally forbidden by the law. I mean, you talk about the things he did in, in, in Israel. He was a murderer. He killed David and I mean, took his vineyard illegally, unlawfully, and God had special judgment pronounced upon him, which later on came to pass. But in the meantime, God was working to him to the very end, trying to get him to turn his heart. And I can think of 1 Kings chapter 18, and not just the king, but the people, because the people were backslidden. You know, the leadership, whoever's in leadership matters. Whoever's a president matters. Whoever's a king matters. 
Whoever's the leader of us, who's the governor, it matters because it filters down to the way that we're governed and the way that we live and the laws that are passed over us. That's why Paul said, pray for those on authority because it, it determines if we live a quiet and peaceable life or not. So God was working with Ahab. He's trying to help his people. Ahab was an idolater and all of Israel went into idolatry as well because the king did. And then, you know the story, when, when Elijah came to Ahab, he proclaimed uh, a, a, a drought for three and a half years. There was no rain. And Ahab was, was upset, you know, that, he, that, that the prophet of God is, is, is troubling Israel. He's bringing calamity and, and deprivation. is bringing hard times upon the nation. Instead of repenting and saying, hey, Elijah, pray another prayer. I repent. He didn't do that. They want to stand in their wickedness and their sin. And so you know what happened. Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, the false god, 450 of them. And they came out, and he made a challenge before the king and all the nations of, over there. And Mount Carmel, I was there in March. Incredible mountain, incredible sight. You can see for miles. In fact, from Mount, Mount Carmel where he was at, you could almost see the Mediterranean Sea to the west. Amen. So when... Elijah was praying and for more rain to finally come. That cloud that he saw, came, it came from the Mediterranean Sea. It's beautiful, standing there. I got a video of it. I wish I could share it with you. Maybe another time. But he challenged the false prophets. And remember, he said, you guys build an altar, I'll build an altar. You put a sacrifice on it, I'll put a sacrifice on it. And then we'll both pray, and the God that answers by fire, let him be God. I said, okay, sounds good to us. And all day long, the prophets of Baal prayed. And in fact, then all day long, nothing happened. And so Elijah started making fun of him, which I don't recommend. Uh, I don't recommend making fun of Satanists and everybody else, you know. We pray for them, but we don't, we don't, we don't chide them. But he prayed. The, the, the prophets of Baal prayed. You know, people, there are people out there who pray, but they pray to the wrong God. And some pray to Satan, and they do get some answers. Only problem is they get suckered in, and they end up being destroyed rather than helped. And so here's Elijah saying, all right, you had your day. You've been praying all day long. And these prophets, these false prophets, are starting to cut themselves, thinking that maybe if I cut myself and shed my blood, maybe it'll make you know, my God, Baal, you know, more attentive to what I'm doing or, or a sacrifice. Well, all day long, nothing happened. And by the time it came to the evening sacrifice, when the Israelites supposed to make a sacrifice about 6 p.m. or so, 6 in the morning, 6 at night, the morning and evening sacrifice, hallelujah. And so here he is. Elijah says now, it's time. And when, before he, 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 he calls for, for fire to come down, he prays. In fact, he also tells the people, put Barrels of water on my sacrifice and the wood and everything. Do the second time, do the third time. It's drenched and soaked with water. And then he prays. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that's uh, 1 Kings 18, 36, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Notice that. He refers to the covenant relationship. We are, we are a special Children of the special covenant. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is the name for Jacob. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And when the fire falls, the Bible says that the entire nation watching this, verse 39, when all the people saw, the, saw it, well, let me go back to 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones, the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. He's not a God. He's the God. There's only one. And they fell on their face. And Baal is not it. Satan is not it. There's only one God. What happened to that miracle? 
And through the word of God, through the man of God, their heart was turned back to God. Because when the mind and the heart is aligned, miracles happen. Hallelujah. Great things happen. Deliverance. But the problem is Ahab was not delivered. In other words, his heart didn't turn. And God's still working with him. In fact, after this, after this great event, Elijah says to Ahab, after those three and a half years of drought, he tells him without Ahab repenting, and he said to him in verse 41, uh, and Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees, and he prayed another prayer. Amen. And the rain came. God didn't kill Ahab. He was still as wicked as before. But do you see the grace and the love of God to what extent he goes to touch and turn the heart of man back to him? He allowed an entire nation to suffer at the hand of this wicked king who refused to repent. And yet God was not done with him. Too many times you and I would cast a person aside. Too often we would write him off and say, God's done with him. There's nothing more I can do. Amen. But God never writes anybody off until they draw their last breath. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, you might be in the audience here this morning, and you may think to yourself, God will never love me. He'll never accept me. Oh, you're more than wrong. Hallelujah. God is only but a prayer away. He's only... <laughs> one repentant prayer away. Oh, you got to say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me, oh God. And when your heart turns to him, he'll give you the promises of his special covenant. And it's interesting that in just another chapter two further, God does another great thing for him. The Philistines come after him. The Syrians do. And they, they, they start a war with him. And, and, he, and, and Ahab didn't pray for victory. But see, what God is doing, he's working on his people. And, and the Bible says that he sends a prophet, uh, verse 13, and behold, that's uh, chapter 20, verse 13, behold, there came a prophet in Ahab of Israel saying, thus saith the Lord, hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. And indeed, he won the victory. He says, how's it going to be? Well, who's going to order the battle? He says, you are, but you're going to order the young ones, the young people. Sent them out in the battle. And they did. They won the day. And then a few verses later, the Syrians say, well, you know, it was all because that God was the God of the hills, not the God of the valleys. And therefore, next, next time, let us hit them in the valley, and we'll be victorious. And God sent the prophet back again and said, you know what? Because they said God is the God of the hills and not of the valleys. Amen. I'm, I'm going to give you the victory again. And Ahab didn't even pray for it. He didn't ask for it. But you see, God is a miracle-working Gracious, loving God. Hallelujah. He uses miracles and his goodness to give you blessings, not to affirm your evil lifestyle. Hello? God didn't do these good things to affirm that Ahab was right, that his idolatry was right, that his murder was right. He was just trying to bless him because God is good. He's trying to get him to repent. Why? Because the Bible said the goodness of God God leadeth to repentance. And we have a clear example of that in the New Testament, Luke chapter 5. It's when uh, uh, Peter and his fellow brethren, his co-workers, his fishermen, were in the same boat. And this is just before uh, Jesus called them to be his, his disciples and his apostles. And, and uh, Jesus asks Peter if he could use his boat to preach to the people. And there's such a big multitude there, Luke chapter 5. And he gets into the boat and he begins to preach. And when he gets done preaching, he says to, the, to Simon, okay, we're done. Let's launch out to the, let's go back out and let's do some more fishing. And Simon, whose name's Peter at that time, okay, Simon, he said unto Jesus, a master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Now, we're fishermen, we're experts at it. We, we've been doing this for a lifetime. We, we worked all night. Wait, there's, there's no fish out there. But he says, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they went out and they let down the net. The Bible said they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. 
and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, and, they could, and that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He wasn't a disciple yet. He wasn't an apostle. But God did a great miracle. He didn't pray for it. Peter wasn't looking for it. But God is looking at the heart. And he's looking at Peter. And he's looking at his partners. He said, I can use these men. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to work a miracle in their life. I'm going to help them out in this situation. Hallelujah. And the purpose of that was what? To expose the goodness of God to their heart. And when they, they, they really listen to it and they, they, they feel it, the result is repentance. At least that's the desire. If the heart is tender enough, if the heart is hard, it will not respond so, unfortunately. But God is still trying. My point is, Peter and his fishermen did nothing to deserve that blessing. Imagine the funds and the finances, the financial blessing this meant to them. Do you understand the things that God sends your way to bless you and to show his goodness to you is not to affirm that the way you are, but to show you how much he cares about you and loves for you and that while you were still a sinner and still a sinner, Christ died for you. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his love. But he loves us. Why? Because he created us and he can't help but love his creation. And he exp he's looking for a response in kind, a response of love. I know in here, uh, I, I told Brother Marty, asked him, I've, I've used him just this past week, in the past several weeks, in fact, he was facing a very impossible situation that only God could take care of. And him and his wife prayed and they fasted, and, and it's incredible what I heard, the great steps of faith that they made and, and, and petitioning God. But I prayed with Brother Marty two weeks ago, I believe this Sunday. Amen. And we put it before the Lord. And then on the day when I had my heart to call him, he called me. Hallelujah. And he told me the great miracle that took place of what God did. And man, I'll tell you what. It was an incredible thing. Hallelujah. And then he called another minister, friend of us, and told him his testimony. And that preacher said, you know what he did? That's what I needed to hear. Instead of trying to do stuff myself, I had to rely on God. He repented. He was repenting on the phone to him. Why am I saying that? To glorify? No, I'm only glorifying God. I'm showing you what God does in our lives. We serve a great God and he loves us. And he's doing great things for each and every one of you. So when your miracle happens, oh yeah, it's when your heart and your mind is in total agreement and focused on him. Now, it's interesting, in 2 Corinthians, New Testament, chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, uh, Paul describes uh, the relationship in the New Testament to the people of Israel, the Jewish people who rejected Jesus Christ, who did not accept the gospel. And the Bible says that every week they're still having church, they're having synagogue, and, and they read the law of Moses. And the Bible says, Paul saying that is a veil on their heart. Notice what he says, but their minds, verse 14, but their minds, the Jewish people, were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. In other words, that veil is on their heart, which was done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, what's it? When the heart. It shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Hallelujah. Now you see, this explains the reason why. And somebody asked me this this past week. You know, why is it that, that some people receive the Holy Ghost right away and others wait for it for later on? Why is it that some people are delivered from some sins and other ones later on, even after they become Christians? Here's the reason why. The degree of your deliverance is determined by the degree of your heart turning to God. When you're fully turned to Him, you're fully delivered. When you're partially turned to Him, you got a partial deliverance. 
And that's why some people may see the revelation of the importance of repentance and baptism in Jesus' name, but they may not even see the, the oneness of God yet. They may not see that there's only one God and not three. They may not see the, 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 un, the, the lack of wisdom in their lifestyle, some of the things that they do, even some of the immorality, the things that they do. Uh, you know, the Bible says that every man that has this hope, in 1 John 3, 3, 3 tells us, every man that has this hope of going to heaven, amen, to become a child of God, purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, it's always preached that God doesn't come to your home and take the whiskey bottle out off of your shelf. He doesn't take the cigarettes out of your pocket. He doesn't make you throw away your, your, your marijuana, your cocaine, your drugs, and everything else, whatever you do, amen, amen, for carnality. He doesn't do it. He doesn't come and take that. He doesn't come clean out your closet. You got to do that. He forgives, but he leads and guides, and you've got to purify yourself. You got to get rid of some stuff. But you see, God doesn't give that to us all in one day. He, he, he gives us to us piecemeal, step by step, day by day, church service by church service, sermon by sermon, a word that you read in your Bible after a word, and God reveals truth to you, and you've got to apply it to yourself. And as you do that, amen, you come to this realization that, hey, I've got to change. That's why Peter said, be not conformed to this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts here. Renewing here, it initiates the change, and then the power of the Spirit comes to help you make those changes to line up with the Word and the will of God. And God's doing all that. We can't do it. You know, Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, he says for, for it is God who worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So we can't take credit for it. And it's God working in us. All we can do is yield to him and be agreeable and follow his leading and allow our heart to be touched. Let our heart be soft and tender and understand that he's working in us. And when a heart is fully turned to the Lord, and that's why he ends up in verse 17. Look at this. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. There's deliverance. Just like in the Old Testament, when the mind and, and heart of Israel was in unity and agreement, their body and soul was delivered. The Spirit of God was there to deliver them. And same thing with many who have come to Christ and they have received partial deliverance and have a partial revelation. When their heart gets fully turned to God, then they're fully delivered. And their answers come. Their miracles come as well. Hallelujah. Just as the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. This is why 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. And once you know what I looked up that word, that perfect, the heart perf being perfect, does not mean that your heart is sinless, it's without perfection, and you do everything right, you dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's in Christianity or the laws of that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is that when your mind and your heart is perfectly focused on him. It's like you got a, a, a single lens telescope and you're focused on him and you close out everything else on him. And the Bible says, God's eyes are running throughout the earth, seeking. He's going through right now. Not just all earth. He's in his congregation. You know what he's doing? He's looking at the hearts. He knows your heart better than I don't, but God does. He's looking at the heart, and he's looking at the heart that is focused on him. If your heart is perfectly focused on him, you're his man. You're his woman. You're his child. He wants to touch you. He wants to be real to you. He wants to deliver you. He wants to do a miracle in your life. He wants to show you great things. He wants you to fall in love with him more than anybody else on the face of this earth. Why? Because that relationship with him will take you into eternity. Nothing else will. Oh, hallelujah. Clap your hands. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. I'm coming to a close. I didn't really even get through half of my message. I can see right now I'm going to have to continue this next Sunday. 
I will continue next Sunday and probably address the issue of the seductive power of Babylon, the world, the power of the world. As John says in 1 John 2.15, love not the world. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. For the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, all that are not of the Father, but they are of the world. We need to talk about it, church, because we're coming into the last hour of this church age. We are on the cutting edge of this battle. And John, the apostle who lived the longest, who wrote the most about this subject of love, saw that in the last days that you're not living in, we're going to need to know this information to fight the good fight because there is a seductive spirit in the world for us to mix our love with God with a love for the world. And whenever you mix the two, there's a loss of power. There's a loss of focus. There's a loss of love. It becomes divided love. And that's the enemy doom. Shall we stand? You know, in the Garden of Eden, Satan came in the form of that serpent and tempted Eve and Adam. And through Eve, he worked. You know, the commandment that God gave, God only had one command in the garden. He said, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, the day you eat it, you're dead. You shall die. Think about this. Until the moment that that fruit, that forbidden fruit, touched Eve's lips, the only thing Adam and Eve knew was good. They knew no evil. There was not one evil thought, not one evil deed, no lie, no cheating, no falsehood. No violation of any commandment of God. It was all good. But then the devil said, well, you need to know what evil is because that's being like God. So if you're going to know evil, then you're going to be just like God. And God doesn't want you to do that because you'll be just like him. And he's a jealous God. He doesn't want you to be like him. Lie. Of course he wants us to be like him. We're sons of God. We're kings and priests under God. Hallelujah. We're going to be like him eventually, aren't we? Hallelujah. That's the promise of the New Testament, a great thing. But back then, he said, God don't want you to be God. Well, yeah, nobody can be God because there's only one God. But th this was the, the deception that once you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like God because now you're going to know what evil is. But here's the problem. Not only did Adam and Eve redefine what good and evil is by disobeying God. Why, why was, it, was it evil for, for, for Adam and Eve to partake of it? Well, God said so. His word defines truth. His word defines the law. Why was it evil? Because God said it was. But more than that, when, when Eve took that fruit, her, her, her mind was darkened, as the Bible says, Romans 1. We'll get into that next time. And her understanding of good was mixed with evil. And all of a sudden, you can't tell a difference between what is really true and what is really wrong. What is good and what is evil. Which one is right? It brought confusion. This is what the Bible says, that the, that the devil is the author of confusion. And he brought confusion through this, this temptation making us think that if we understood evil and good, then we'll always choose the good and we're going to be like God. No. What it does, it brings confusion. Now look at today. The world is confused about what is good and what is evil. And in fact, 
the devil used the system of Babylon to create a national mindset. That's what the Bible refers to as the world, the cosmos, to use as leverage upon you and I and upon the masses of people. Well, the devil no longer works just on an individual basis to tempt mankind, but to create a national mindset, a global mindset, a global consciousness of evil and bringing rebellion against God. And there's a seduction to it. Because now you no longer have to just rely upon your own judgment, their society. And whatever they say and affirm is right, I can do. Even if it's contrary to God. So I asked you today, where's your heart? Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard what's prepared for them who love them. God loves you. But my question today, do you love him? Do you love him? If not, I pray that you're filled with the Spirit, that you repent of your sins, be baptized in his name. And in fact, I would, that Sister Angie, if you would get your children who are ready to be baptized, as if they're up here already, to prepare them. See, water baptism remits the sin, but then you know what happens? The promise of God is you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And you know what that is? That's the love of God. The Bible tells us the love of God is shut abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. When you're filled by the Spirit of God, are you looking at me here, folks? Are you looking at me? Keep your focus. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to somebody right now. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're filled with the love of God so you can fulfill that greatest commandment of all. That's to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's why it's so important to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Why? Because that's your response in kind. See, it's not in us to love God. God is love, but that's who He is. But love in you and I as human beings is a response. 1 John 4, 19, we love Him because He first loved us. As He loves us, we are to respond as you worship Him in obedience by repenting and being baptized. And you're filled with the Spirit. When you get the Spirit of God, you get the love of God so you can love Him with everything you've got. What an awesome God we serve. You see His providence? You see His grace? Hallelujah. Praise team. Sing.
your heart aligned with God? Is your heart aligned with His will today? Let's seek the Lord. Let's get aligned with His will this morning. Ask Him to help you, Lord. Ask Him to help you. That your heart, that your mind are aligned with His will and with His plan this morning. Good to